0: Let us pray. Father, we come before you during this time. Lord, we know this is your word and we are your people. So God, would you help me to believe and teach and preach this morning what the Bible says is true. God, would you use this time in your word that your name would be magnified and that our hearts would be turned toward you and in you find our hope. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Over the past couple of weeks, we've taken a break from our sermon series in Matthew, and we spent some time in 1 Corinthians 11, and then last week we were in Hebrews 2. Today, we're going to turn our attention to Psalm 42. Now, at first glance, it's easy for us to think that these sermons are just three unrelated sermons and really have nothing to do with one another. The beautiful thing about Scripture is that the central theme is Christ, and so they are all connected. And to be honest, Todd, Michael, and I did not sit down and try to craft some mini-sermon series in order to fill the gaps in between the sermon series and Matthew and what is coming next, but I want you to see that in God's providence, He has brought us texts that we have needed to hear as the people of God of Grace Baptist Church. So what do I mean? If we take an honest look at the last two years, we realize that God has brought to light a lot of the things that we have been struggling with. We've seen pride and selfishness and forgetfulness. And so what's the solution to that? What's, what's the answer? It's to fix our eyes on Christ as we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, as we come to the Lord's table and remember and proclaim His sacrifice and His work. Over the last couple of years, indifference And drifting have occurred. And so what's the answer to that? Once again, it's to fix our eyes on Christ, as we learned from Hebrews 2. And over the last two years, we've seen a lot of suffering and a lot of sorrow. So what is the answer to that? To fix our eyes on Christ as we come to Christ in the midst of our pain. And we will see that in Psalm 42 today. So I hope you don't view these sermons as unrelated, but rather these are sermons by the Spirit's work, leading us and pointing us to fix our eyes on Christ as God cares for his people in the midst of a fallen world. So I invite you to stand once again, if you're able, as we read Psalm 42 this morning out of reverence for God's word. The psalmist writes this, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your ways have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You may be seated. Before we dive into the text, just a brief word of some background information. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 likely would have been together as one unit. Uh, For today's purposes, we're just going to focus on Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is an individual lament. To lament at its core is to express grief or sorrow. And biblically speaking, to lament is to go before God and cry out to Him in your sorrow. And this is the structure of the psalm. We see that he will lament and then express a refrain of hope. We'll see a lament and then a refrain of hope. And this is comforting, honestly, because in our lives, this is characteristic. One minute we can have hope, the next minute we're lamenting. One minute we can have hope, and the next minute we're lamenting. And there's this back and forth exchange that takes place. Dear brothers and sisters, just this week alone, I have come to know several in our church family and even outside of here, who have had great battles with sorrows and and pain and suffering. It's just a reminder of God's timeliness through his word as we look at this psalm today. So verse 1, the psalmist writes this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, this is probably a very familiar verse to many of us. And when we hear it, it might conjure up these images of like a peaceful National Geographic scene. So you, you picture it, the narrator comes on, and you almost feel the narrator lean in and go, and now we observe the deer and her fawn in their natural habitat as they gently lean down to take a cool, refreshing drink from the stream. And that's the image that comes to mind. I have a picture just like this in in my house that I grew up in. But the problem with this is this is not really what the psalmist is conveying here. It's quite the opposite. I mean, you think about the word that's used here, panting. When you think of the word panting, do peaceful images come to mind? No. Panting isn't peaceful. It is not pleasant. It's ugly. I saw this with Ultimate Frisbee on Wednesday night. People coming off the field, and they're just panting and gasping for air. Because when someone's panting, most of the time, what is happening? They're in desperation. They almost feel to the point of being near death. They they need something. So a more accurate picture here when we see this deer panting is this deer in a barren land just crawling and the tongue just dragging the ground as it's trying to get to the stream before it dies. That's what we're seeing here in the psalm. This helps to set the, the tone and the context for this passage. The psalmist is deeply vexed in his soul. He is desperate. He is panting. He is longing for something. Rather, he is longing for someone. He is longing for God. He desperately needs and desires God's presence. This same thought is continued in the second verse when he says, My my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Here he reiterates the fact that his soul is parched and he is thirsting for God. Nothing Else, No one else will satisfy his longing. Only God, the living God, can meet his need. The psalmist's description of the living God is essential for his hope in the midst of lament. As the living God, he is the source of life. He gives life both physically and spiritually. He is the God who sustains life. And this idea of God being the living God coupled with thirsting and panting should, should make us think about even what we sang earlier about the living waters passages that we see throughout Scripture. In Jeremiah 17, 13, God is referred to as the Lord, the fount of living water. Jesus offers living water in John chapter 4. And in Revelation 7, 17, we see that it is the Lamb who will guide the people to springs of living water. In essence, what the psalmist is saying is that he thirsts more than anything in the midst of his sorrow for the living God. Because God is his very life. Apart from God, he has no life. Apart from God, he has no hope. At the end of verse 2, his desire, we see in the question, when shall I come and appear before God, is he desires to be in the presence of God. He asks that question. His soul is in anguish. He needs rest. And only in the presence of God is there true rest and peace. And if we want a deeper picture of just how tormented the writer is, we see this in verse 3. He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? What a painful image. How disastrous that the one who desires living water from God right now is drinking upon, is feasting upon his tears day and night. The agony that expressed here is constant and deep. The psalmist is tormented and consumed with grief with every waking moment and every moment of the night. It's made worse by the fact of what we read in the second part of this verse, that there is someone who is taunting the psalmist with questions of God's presence, which is the very thing the psalmist desires. They ask, where is your God? Well, if you're like me, the question is, well, who are they? I mean, is it like when we say, in our context, well, you know what they say? We don't know who they are, you know? No, no, they're... We know who they are. Likely it's the enemies and adversaries that are being mentioned down in verse 9 and verse 10. And we'll look at that a little bit later in the sermon. What we see here is that the point is that the psalmist desires God's presence, and the enemy is using that question to taunt the psalmist. But as the psalmist continues in his lament, we see just a little shift, a little glimmer of hope in verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. As the psalmist laments, he remembers. And it's important to see that he is simultaneously pouring out his soul and remembering things that are true things of the past. Oftentimes we can be guilty of remembering the past, remembering truth, to the neglect of expressing our sorrow. We can treat our our suffering as just matter of fact and that it doesn't really matter. It's no big deal. Or we can do the opposite where we can let our pain, our sorrow, our feelings drive us to forget the truth of the past. We must avoid both of these extremes. Because the truth is that we can express our grief, we can express our sorrow, And pour out our souls while remembering truth. You see, what the psalmist remembers is rooted in God's past faithfulness while expressing lament in present sorrow. What is it that he remembers? He remembers going to the temple. He remembers going to the temple to worship with the people of God. At first glance, we might simply think that he's just reflecting back on the good old days, much like we would have seen in the theme song to the popular sitcom All in the Family, you know? Those were the days. Or how we sometimes reflect back on our past with memories of fondness of, of days gone by. But as we look at this remembering, we're clued into part of the reason and the nature of the torment. Namely, that the psalmist is separated from the people of God and from temple worship. But the temple wasn't just some building. To which he would go. No, it represented God's presence. It represented God's power. His favor among his people. There were shouts. And I jokingly thought, well, they probably weren't Baptists. but uh, So there were shouts and songs of praise and keeping festival. All of this was pointing to God and remembering who he is and what he had done for them. And this is... In part, why so desperately the psalmist desires to come before God, he wants to experience the power of God's presence as he did, as he would gather with God's chosen people. But for some reason, he is hindered from worship and fellowship. Matthew Henry uh, makes a great observation when he says, Sometimes God teaches us effectually to know the worth of mercies by want of them and whets our appetites for the means of grace by cutting us short in those means. Simply put, sometimes we don't appreciate what we have until it's taken from us. The psalmist has a deep appreciation for worship, but more than that, his desire is for the God who is worshipped. Here's a question for us to ponder. When we are hindered, when you are hindered from being in worship with your church family, the people of God, does absence make the heart grow fonder, Or is it out of sight, out of mind? It's an important question for us to answer. Because if the body of Christ is out of sight and out of mind, it's likely the Lord is as his will. The problem then is further complicated when suffering and sorrow are involved. What is our tendency concerning worship and fellowship when times are hard? we're honest, we tend to pull away from God and from the body when times are hard. Whether it's due to sin or shame or life circumstances, one of the schemes of the enemy is that he tempts us to isolate from Christ and from his body. And it's important for us to gather in all circumstances because when we gather and when we worship together, we are being obedient and the spirit is building up that discipline within us. Worshipping and fellowshipping in the good times prepares us for when the trials come so that we can worship and fellowship regardless of the circumstances. The reality is is in good times and bad times, we need to lean into Christ and lean into his body, not pull away. Now some of you might think, well that's easy for people who actually like to be around people. Or somebody like you, Matt, who enjoys people and plus, you're a pastor. You kind of got to be here. May I share a story with you? March 10th, 2021 was a day that I absolutely hated. I despised it with every fiber of my being. If you know the significance of it, that's my 38th birthday. And it wasn't because I was getting older. The reality is there had been a lot of tragedy, a lot of heartache that had led up to those days. And the month before that, we found out my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. What many people don't know is that my brother and I were told that dad only had two weeks to live, tops. So I start doing the math, and that's going to fall right on my birthday. So I wait for what I think is the inevitable. And in God's providence, my birthday was on a Wednesday. Well, I can tell you, I didn't want to get out of bed that morning, much less come into this office and be around guys that I normally enjoy being around. I love the guys I work with, the people I serve with. I came in, there was a muffin and a bag of coffee from Baxter's in my office. I lost it. I just broke down and cried. The guy who got it for me shows in the doorway, wishes me a happy birthday, brings me a hug, and I'm going to tell you, he had to wring out his shirt because I just buried my face and cried all over him. I'd already made up my mind. I was going to get my stuff. I was going to hide somewhere in this building. I did not want to be around anyone. People found me. Another brother came in and found me, and I cried all over him. And then other church members showed up and brought blessings, birthday blessings to me. This is all even just before lunch. And I did not want to be found. And then being a Wednesday, that meant I had to go to Oasis, the student ministry worship time. I didn't want to go to worship. I didn't want to be led in worship, much less be the one that actually had to preach God's word that night. And the reality is, in the months and stuff after dad's death, the grief kept coming. I struggled to want to come in and worship. It was painful. But I tell you this story not for pity, but to trace God's faithful hand in my sorrow. You see, I didn't want to worship in fellowship. I wanted to wallow and I wanted to hide. But God in his mercy brought you into my life. And he gave me what I needed in my darkest hour. He gave me the strength to worship. He gave me the strength to be led in worship. I was able to come And hear God's word week after week. I had brothers and sisters who would talk of God's word with me. He gave me you to fellowship with. To rejoice with. To weep with. Praise God. That God gave me what I needed. Not what I wanted in that moment. God was doing things for me little by little. God did not leave me in my sorrow. And God did not leave the psalmist either. Verses 5 and 6. Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Interestingly enough, the psalmist talks to himself. He questions why he's in this state and why he's feeling this way. It's natural for us to want to understand why we feel the way we feel and why we feel cast down when we are a people who who have hope and we are so blessed. And sometimes we struggle to find a rhyme or reason as to why we feel the way we feel. And sometimes we can pinpoint certain sins and certain struggles and certain circumstances that are causing us to be downcast. But either way, it's important for us to wrestle through our suffering and ask these questions like we see here. And God doesn't leave us here because we quickly see the answer here. It's to hope in God. It's important that we have to look outside of ourselves for our hope in situations because otherwise life is hopeless. We must look to God as our hope because we live in a world where we are told just to think positively and be positive. When circumstances are bad, just just be positive. I remember seeing a show one time where someone was bemoaning. This character was like, oh, this is bad, and this is bad, and this is bad. And the, the other character looks at him and says, just be positive. So the first character goes, okay, fine, I'm positive things are bad. Being positive doesn't change our circumstances. Yes, it does change how we respond to the situation, but we don't find our hope in positive thinking. We must look to the living God who is sovereign over our circumstances, who can change them, and who is working through them for His glory and our good. That's where we find our hope. Hope Hoping in God puts circumstances in perspective. It gives validity to the pain without making our pain all-powerful. Hoping in God points us back to His character and reminds us that our circumstances do not change the character of God. God is holy, righteous, just, merciful, faithful, loving, and kind in all that Scripture says He is, and none of that changes when times are hard. Hoping in God reminds us of His goodness and that in His goodness and sovereign plan, He is allowing these trials, He is bringing these trials to conform you and me to the image of His Son. Hoping in God reminds us that these trials are temporary and ultimately for the glory of God and our good. The psalmist' desire returns again for God as he hopes in God in this refrain of hope. He hopes in God because of what he knows. He knows about God's past faithfulness. And how it proves its love in the present circumstances and will result in a future praise. God's past faithfulness is actually seen in the description of God here. God is his salvation. Time and time again, God has delivered his people from their enemies, from death, from famine. He has hope because he knows that God will one day deliver him again and he will praise his God and experience the joy of his presence because God is our Deliverer. The same idea is expressed in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our present hope and sorrow Rooted in God's past faithfulness results in future praise to the glory of God. But I want you to overlook something here. Not only is God his salvation, but God is his God. Our God is not some far-off deity. He is a God who knows his people intimately. He knows their sufferings. He knows their pain. And in this, the psalmist hopes. God made him a part of his chosen people. He is only able to say, my God, because God brought him in through mercy and grace, adopted him into his family like he has done for us. We were orphaned and cut off because of sin and because of our sin in, in our lives. And However, though, God loved us and he chose us and he brought us into his family. You see, believers, we know that we can call our God our God because of the life, the work the death and the resurrection of Christ and that we are called by the Spirit of God. As Ephesians says, we who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We can have hope in sorrow because God is our salvation and He is our God. He knows this. And where do we end back up in verse 6? My soul is cast down with me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, and from Mount Mizar. Okay? No sooner have we had this or- exhortation to hope in God. And right where are we again? Words of lament. Honestly, again, I want to point out, this is a sobering comfort for us. Because this is the very pattern of oscillating back and forth between lament and hope that we see in our lives. Sometimes it's hours, sometimes it's minutes. Or in my case, sometimes seconds. Seconds. And in 6B, there is honesty. His soul is still downcast. He rightly acknowledges his present suffering. And I think an important practical takeaway for all of us in this this right here is that we do need to indeed acknowledge our suffering and our pain. Too often we over-spiritualize the idea of denying our pain or neglecting our hurt. Maybe it's because you were taught to keep a stiff upper lip and that expressing grief is a sign of weakness. Or maybe you've got these false ideas embedded in you that Christians don't suffer, true Christians don't suffer, and they never get depressed. Or maybe perhaps we're tempted to minimize our suffering because we're comparing it to someone else's suffering and we don't think ours is as bad. And we've got to dismiss all of those. It is important for us to acknowledge our suffering in the proper way. We are not better Christians if we deny our pain. Jesus, the mighty Savior, acknowledged sorrow. Mark 14, 34. Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Christ, in his humanity, expressed grief and sorrow. And he did so in a way that brought honor to God. We're human. We're made in his image. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sorrow-filled world. We're going to experience this. We must not deny our sorrow, church. But rather, we need to bring it before God and share it with other people, other believers. I had a dear brother in Christ who told me something that was shared with him. Someone gave him the advice that says, It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to admit, church, that we're not okay. Our hope and our identity is not in the presence nor the absence of suffering or sorrow, but rather it's in the power and the presence of Christ. And so, having admitted this, that his soul's downcast. He continues with his lament. And again, we see that in the the midst of lament, there's remembering. What is it that he remembers this time? You you notice he mentions some geographic places here, the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Now, some scholars believe that this could have been part of his homeland, while others believe maybe these were parts of his journey on his wandering or part of where he was exiled. Regardless of the fact, what we see the psalmist doing here is he's recalling these geographic locations in order to foster some kind of hope in God as he reflects back on a time where he experienced the power and love of God's presence. But we'll see that memory quickly fades to a more tempestuous thought. Verse 7 says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So if you remember back at the beginning of the psalm, the idea of water was what? It was positive, it was good, it was satisfying, it was what he was longing for. Now here we see this element of water is overwhelming the psalmist. It's deep, it's fierce. You can hear the roars of the waves crashing down and the sheer power, just see it, of those waves beating down upon him. If you've ever been to the ocean... When a day has been storming, the waves are just crashing down, we kind of somewhat have an idea of what the psalmist is describing here. But then if you get gutsy enough and you go out in that, you get an even clearer picture of what the psalmist is describing here. You get out there and a wave smacks you down. You get back up and no sooner have you gotten back up, another wave comes from behind and knocks you down. And this keeps going on and on and knocks the wind out of you sometimes. What he's describing here is a metaphor for the chaotic and stormy nature of life, particularly in the midst of sorrow. He's distraught, downcast, and he feels continually beaten down over and over and over again. With every taunt, with every misery, and with every wave, more and more and more of his hope is gone, and more and more and more of his life is gone Church, we're tempted to feel that way at times. And as, we, as he was tossed into life's stormy sea, he needed rescue. He needed someone to come in and snatch him up and to hold him fast as the storm rages on. And I tell you, church, today that praise God that the Lord, the same Lord who sustained the psalmist, who held him up in the storm, is the same psalmist who in Matthew 8 calms the waves, who in Matthew 14 rescues Peter. He is the same God who keeps you and me in the storms of our lives. And We see this in verse 8. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The words in verse 8 are in stark contrast to verse 3, where the psalmist has been feasting on his tears day and night. Remember that in verse 3. Now we see that in the day it's the Lord's loving kindness, and at night God's song is there with him. Even when he feels cut off and far away from God, he recognizes that it is God who is sustaining him with his love. When the hour seems darkest, he is still able to sing and offer a prayer to God, to cry out to God in his pain. And that's why I'm thankful for hymns like, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me on. We can sing stuff in the night like that because we know God is there. We know it is Him who sustains us day and night. This is the grace of God, church. Not that we don't have storms, but that God is the God over the storms. It's what we meditated upon in, in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 3-4, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And you see, when you think about God's day and night provision, man, it recalls to me images of the Exodus, where God is leading his people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God was there day and night providing continual care for his people because our God is merciful and loving to his people in their afflictions. Again, the psalmist does not... Find hope or satisfaction in the presence or the absence of the storm rather he is reminded that God is with us through the storm God met him in the mess God meets you and me in our messes the psalmist knows God's presence. he knows he's there he's just said it but yet he still feels abandoned do you see that and he still feels the torment of the enemy in verses 9 and 10 I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taught me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The psalmist simply addresses God. He calls him my rock. Take comfort in these words. This is not some small pebble, but it is a a stable, immovable, enormous stone. It's a stone upon which a person can rest and build, knowing they will not be moved or shaken. And because God is his rock, he can come to him with the questions that he asks, like, Why have you forgotten me? And why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Another way that we see this asked in scriptures are, How long, O oh Lord? Or it should resound or recall to mind Psalm twenty-two, one, where David cries out the very words that the Lord also cries out on the cross: "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" We see that this question comes up through Scripture. Church, if we're honest, have we not all felt the same way at times? We've looked to heaven and wondered, especially with everything going on in the world right now, where is God in all of this? Has He grown cold or deaf? Does he not hear our problems anymore? We can feel abandoned and forgotten by God. So we have to ask then, has God forgotten his people? Does God ultimately forsake his people? We have to answer this question. In moments when we are tempted to feel this way and ask these questions, what do we do? Well, here's what we do. We have to remember what we have heard from God and what we've seen from God. We have to be reminded of truth and reality. So, what have we heard from God? We've heard things in Joshua one five, where He says to Joshua, "No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you." Or Psalm ninety four fourteen, where He says, "For the Lord will not forsake His people; He will not abandon His heritage." Isaiah 41, 9b and 10, which is part of where we get how firm a foundation from, the song. You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hebrews four fifteen sixteen, 16, where we're told that for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. What's our response? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And just a few chapters later in verse uh, 5 of 13, he says, For for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Church, this is what we've heard from God. That he is never going to leave his people. He's never going to forsake them or abandon them. Now what have we seen? I'll give you a few examples. I'm glad you asked for them. Genesis 8, God remembers Noah and his creation during the flood. Genesis 30, he remembers Rachel and opens up her womb. In Exodus 2, God hears Israel's groaning. He remembers his covenant and he acts on behalf of his people in his time. These are just a few examples. God has never forgotten his people, nor will he ever. One writer put it this way, when God remembers, it means that he acts accordingly to his covenant promises, especially in a way that is evident to his people. Or as Calvin put it, God, who has promised his help to the miserable, will in due time be present with us that we may indeed perceive the care he takes of us. We need to remind ourselves of the examples from Scripture and these promises during hard times. God does not abandon his people. And ultimately, God has remembered His people through bringing the Deliverer, Christ. To come, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to pay the price for sin by dying on the cross, being buried, and being raised by God Himself. God remembered that His people were in bondage to their sin, and in His time, He acted and He delivered them. God never has forgotten His people. And we even see that God remembers us in the future return of our Lord. A very familiar passage, John 14, 1, 3 says what? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And in Revelation 22, the Lord reminds us, Behold, I am coming soon. God has not forgotten his people. God has always remembered his people. It's good that we know this and are reminded of this. Because we will, like the psalmist, be tempted to ask these questions. And it's good that we remember this, because like the psalmist, we're going to face the oppression of the enemy that we saw in verse 10. In in verse 10, we see that the pain here of these taunts, of this torment, are like a deadly wound that goes all the way down to the bone, to the very fiber of the psalmist being. He is in anguish. The adversaries taunt him with the question of God's presence and love. Not just once or twice, but this malice is ongoing, and the enemy snarls and says, Where is your God? Where is he in your sorrow? Where is he right now? Now, obviously, the the writer is talking about a physical enemy, flesh and blood, who is taunting, who is attacking. We too may face this, if not already. And we've got dear brothers and sisters right now who are facing physical, earthly enemies with taunts and attacks of, where is your God? And those, easy, those enemies are easy to, for us to, to see and identify. But church, one thing we can't forget is that there are enemies that we don't see. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over present darkness over spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We face enemies, spiritual enemies, on a daily basis. So who are these enemies? One pastor, Tom Askell, identified what he called the, holy, the unholy trinity, Satan, the flesh, the world. Here's the quote to give you more context. He says, in addition to Satan, Christians must also fight against the flesh, the sin that despite our conversion remains within us until we leave this life and the world, the godless values and philosophies that predominate our culture. This unholy trinity is set to undermine the work of God in the believer's life and Satan is the personal strategist for them all. For every believer in here, for every believer in the world, these enemies are working against them and God's glory and asking, hurling their attacks, every volley taunting, where is your God? The question that was asked in verse 3 and verse 10 here, where is our God? We've we've got to wrestle with this. And if we're not careful, we'll start to believe the lie that's embedded in it. And the lie is that God is left. That God is not there. We must rebuke such a lie and take those thoughts captive. Because in our times of sorrow and suffering, that's where we tend to go. Throughout the psalm, the question, though, has been answered in these laments, even in the laments. God is omnipresent and ever-present in the midst of suffering. God has not left. He is the God who is there. Verse 2, He is the living God. Verse 8, He is the comforting God who is there. Verse 9, He is God who is the rock. Because of who God is and what He has done, And because he is present, at the close of Psalm 42, we can hear this refrain of hope again. He says, why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This encouragement is a fitting way for us to once again respond to the reality that we're hurting. We can go before God, pour out our souls in our sorrow before the Lord. The question may be for us, okay, well, how do I do this? How do I hope in God? And so we're going to talk about some, a few practical ways that we can do this, during, especially during suffering and sorrow. Now, this is not something where we've got a mantra, where we're just like, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God, kind of like the little engine that could. It's not what we're talking about here. We recognize that hope in God is the work of the Spirit. We must get that clear. And it comes through the gospel. And at the same time, there are practical things that we can do as believers, spiritual disciplines that we can build in to point us to having hope in God. And this should come as no surprise to you. The list I'm about to give you are already the ordinary means of grace that God has given to the church. Things you already know about. So number one, that we spend time in God's Word individually, communally, and corporately. I think we get it that we need to be in the Word privately and in our Private devotion time that we do that when we come together here each week for worship. But I think a lost element could also be that we, we need to talk of God and His Word as we live life together outside of these four walls. This helps to center our eyes and fix our eyes on Christ. We need to read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it, so that during our darkest hour, the Spirit will bring to remembrance what we've stored in our hearts. We need to pray. We should carve out time to pray daily. We should pray with one another and for one another. And I would say specifically, we need to pray that we would have hope in God during the good times and during the bad times. Number three, we must gather for corporate worship. And in that, we're going to do two of the things that we just said, being in the Word together and praying. But you know what else we get to do? We get to sing. And please don't miss the importance of how our singing fosters hope in God. When we, sing so, when we sing in here, we do so to God and for God and about God. Okay? We get that. And at the same time, we're encouraging one another with the truths that we're singing. And sometimes when we come in here to sing, we're singing for those who cannot sing. Who in their pain and in their hurt cannot lift their voices. They don't have the energy to do it. And we're singing on their behalf and we are singing to them, encouraging them with the word in song. Don't miss that church. We need to be intentional, number five, to fellowship with other believers and point each other to the gospel and the truth of Scripture. We need to be together as God's people outside of these walls. And a lot of what I'm saying we're doing, but it's just a good reminder to do it. What we dwell upon is what we'll find our hope and our identity in. Let us remind each other of who God is, what He has done, and who we are in Christ. Let's encourage one another with talk of what God is doing in our midst. Let's preach the truth of God's word to ourselves and to each other. Fifth, just something practical. Keep a journal. Look around at all that God has made and all that He is doing, especially in the good times. Record it, write it down. And so when you are faced with dark times, you can look back on it and remember what God is doing. The reality of sorrow for a believer is not an if, it's a when. We are a people who will face suffering and sorrow. But we can suffer with hope. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Thessalonians 4. As we grieve, we grieve as those who have hope. We can face sorrow with hope because God is our hope. And so I'm going to leave you the best way I can to quote back the psalmist's words in verse 11. But before we do, I want to give some instruction. At the end of me reading this, we're going to enter into a time of prayer. Because one of the the things that's neglected in worship is the act of lamenting. So we're going to take a, a few moments of silence for you to cry out to God together, here, individually. Because lamenting is an act of worship as we go before God. And we bring Him our pain. Because we know He is the only one who can do anything with that. Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me hope in God for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God let's bow